Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Pop Culture. I'm Gail Fashingbauer-Cooper, the author of two pop culture books, Whatever Happened to Pudding Pops, and The Totally Sweet 90s, both written with Brian Belmont. And we have a real treat today. I'm talking to Alan Sepinwall, longtime television writer and author of The Revolution Was Televised, How the Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Lost, and other groundbreaking dramas changed TV forever. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Um, now, this podcast is called New Books in Pop Culture, but savvy listeners might know that your book is more a revised version was issued in December. Um, which gave me the excuse to talk to you, so that made me very happy. Um, can you tell us a little bit, the book started out self-published, am I right? Yes, uh, I self-published it back in the fall of 2012. I had taken it around to a few publishers. Uh, they didn't seem that interested. One showed lukewarm interest, but wanted a very different kind of book from the one I wanted to write. And so eventually I decided to do it myself. And I knew people who had self-published books who could talk me through it. And the, the apparatus is pretty well in place by this point. So it wouldn't just be an ebook. There was a paperback edition and everything else. And I did that. And then the New York Times gave it a positive review. And suddenly all the publishers who didn't want to talk to me six months earlier were calling me. And so the new edition came and then this new revised edition from last December. Awesome. That's great. That must have felt good when all of a sudden uh, those people had to kind of think back on when they turned you down before. It was it was a nice day. It was a very strange day. Like (laughs) The day before, I just get a, uh, an email from someone at the New York Times saying, Hi, Kakatani is reviewing your book tomorrow. Can you send us a headshot, please? <sighs> nice. That's great. Uh, and let's, you point out that it's, your book uh, tackles a dozen shows. It talks about more, but it ha- tackles a dozen chapter by chapter. And you, you point out that those are not, you're not saying these are the best 12 shows ever to be on television, but that I, I thought this was really interesting. Each show is included for a reason. It helps tell a part of the story that you're putting forth in the book and illustrates how TV has changed. Is that right? Yeah, because, for instance, like The West Wing, which is not in the book, is a better show than 24, which is. But The West Wing is a classical network-style drama of the kind that were being made for for a couple of decades before The Sopranos debuted, whereas 24 helps illustrate the way in which TV made a much bigger push into the world of serialization, especially on network. And so that one's in there and the other one's not. Right, right. Um, and I'm just going to warn people that if you haven't seen some of the great shows that we're going to be talking about, uh, spoilers aplenty. So we're not trying to hide the ending of The Sopranos. I was working for NBC when that finale happened, and uh, there were a lot of people who were angry about it. Some people wanted us to wait till the DVDs came out to discuss <laughs> plots, and that was not happening. I thought, do we email you individually? Have you watched your DVDs yet? Or now can we spoil things? It was kind of crazy, so there won't be spoilers. But... Um, Going back to the beginning of your book, you talk about in your prologue kind of how television got to this point. And one of All in the Family was what my parents watched all the time. And that was a groundbreaker as well, although we look back and it seems maybe more traditional. 
Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it's weird. Like there was this pocket of television in the early 1970s with that and Maud and a few other things where TV was able to be much franker about politics, about race and class and, and other things that were hot button issues that you know, a network TV show like All in the Family could not exist today. He, at least broadcast gotten tamer in that respect. Right. That's definitely true. And Maud had an abortion. There were many things that were handled, you know, in a sitcom that we stayed away from for years after that. Yeah. And so eventually those shows started happening in cable. So Archie was kind of an early anti-hero. And you had much like you have with, say, Walter White. Some of the audience really identified with Archie. He was their hero and Meathead was the idiot. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's that goes on. You have Tony Soprano. There are people who love Tony, who love Christopher, who would defend everything they did. And it reminded me a lot of hearing people talk about All in the Family back in the day. Right. And some people would say, you know, you're you're seeing the wrong thing. You're liking the things that were kind of being put on display to say, oh, no, don't do this. Don't be Archie or, you know, don't be Tony. But people <laughs> people still root for those qualities sometimes. I remember. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I remember one time I was at a an after party for the Sopranos premiere and I'm in line at the bar to get drinks. And some woman asks me what I thought about the episode. And she said she was really upset because Christopher was shooting heroin. She's like, he's such a nice boy. And I'm thinking, what did we want? Do we watch the same show? Like, yeah, he kills people. Yeah, including his girlfriend. <laughs> yep. Yikes. Um, so let's start out. You don't start with The Sopranos, but you start with the HBO prison drama Oz, which you call the foundation for almost anything, everything that followed. Um, can we talk about Oz a little bit? Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I remember not seeing it when it first came out and just hearing about the horrors of it, you know, the swastika and the the, the things that were kind of like do I want to watch this show? It felt like the first show in a way where you almost, you had to judge if you were ready for that show. Was that something that you could handle? No, absolutely. And it's in many ways more extreme than a lot of what followed because it's set in a prison. So it's sort of, it has every yeah. evil type of character you have on The Sopranos, on Breaking Bad, on The Wire. They were all under one roof on one right. show and just doing the most despicable, awful things as possible. But in the midst of all that violence and all that darkness, there was also a lot of thoughtful discussion, not only about the prison system, but uh, civil rights, religion, aging, health care, all kinds of stuff. It, it became a microcosm for America in general. It was really impressive what Tom Fontana did. Right, right. And then we kind of move on to The Sopranos. Uh, and you were perfectly placed, in a sense, to be the TV writer to come out with this book because you were in New Jersey at the time, right? Writing for The Star Ledger? Yeah, I was writing for The Star Ledger. Um, I grew up one town over from where David Chase had grown up. My editor at The Star Ledger at the time had been on the freshman dorm at Rutgers with James Gandolfini and allegedly put the dent into Gandolfini's head by slamming a door <laughs> in his face when they were, like, you know, chasing each other around the dorm. So we were pretty well embedded by the time that show debuted. Wow. And didn't Tony read your paper? Wasn't that the paper he picked yeah, up he in his robe? Yeah, he... that's why the Star Ledger is famous, because we are the paper at the end of Tony's driveway. That's great. That is just great. Um, yeah. And you start out with a quote from Tony about how he felt he was kind of coming to the mob scene late, like all the good stuff had been done. And, you know, really, it's kind of a, a fun thing to think of in context of his show, which was you know, right at the beginning of the revolution in TV. No, absolutely. But Tony, like pretty much everyone on The Sopranos, was fundamentally lacking in self-awareness. So even if you tried to tell him something like that, I don't think he would quite understand. Right, right. 
Yeah, there's still one of my favorite ones is when uh, I think it's Polly and somebody are trying to shake down a Starbucks and they're suddenly realizing they can't do this the, w- the way they used to. And the manager says, you don't get it. They count every bean in Seattle. It's like we can't pay you protection money like the old days, like the old guys. The Jamba to. Juice, but I'm not positive. Oh, and see, being in Seattle, I thought, oh, that's, that's they go to Starbucks in one of the it. first episodes. But I think the failed shakedown is the Jamba Juice. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, well, it's just, it's just kind of like here you're in a new world. Like you know, watching Downton Abbey last night, and the, the new world concept is you know thrown through that show a lot. The same idea was like, oh, man, we're in a new world. And that's kind of what your book's about. These shows are, are a new world of shows. It's not uh, old sitcoms anymore. No, and the people who were making them had like sort of had to keep pinching themselves. They couldn't believe the things they were suddenly being allowed to do that TV had for decades said, you know, this can't happen. Right, right. And one of those things that comes up in my mind a lot is so many of those plot lines that, as in life, were not resolved. You know, we never get revenge for Melfi's. Assault. We never find out what happened to the check-in or the Russian that runs away in the Pine Barrens. We never, you know, I still think about those sometimes, and they're fictional. What happened to these people? What happened to Furio when he went back to Italy? We will never know. Exactly. We will never know. Um, and let's see. So the final episode, I think we probably have to talk about that. I was covering that for my media at the time and honestly thought my television broke at the absolute wrong, wrong moment when the fade to black. Um, can you remind our readers kind of how that ended and, and talk a little bit about the controversy that yeah. so, came out so of it? So Tony and his family, as most Soprano seasons do, it ends on them going out to dinner. They're at a New Jersey ice cream parlor called Holston's. Tony puts Don't Stop Believing by Journey on the jukebox. Carmela and then AJ walk in. They order some onion rings. They're talking. Um, Meadow takes forever to parallel park. It's the most <laughs> harrowing, tense <laughs> parallel parking scene ever filmed. And, you know, and the, like Tony keeps looking suspiciously to everyone in the in the place. There's a guy in a members only jacket who a lot of people are convinced was important. Members only guy goes into the bathroom. Meadow charges into the diner. Tony looks at her. Cut to black. Nothing else. And some people think he's dead. Some people don't know. Right, right. I mean, there's you could make a conspiracy theory about every bit of it because, you know, in The Godfather is the famous scene where they hide the gun in the bathroom. So is there the guy going to come out of the bathroom blazing with a weapon or, you know, what's the what's the plot there? And someone should really teach Meadow to park better than that. Cause, uh, really. That was one of the advantages of doing the second edition of the book, which was originally done just because when I first published it, Mad Men and Breaking Bad hadn't finished yet. And so I wanted to do those. But I was able to spruce up some other things and something that happened last year was David Chase wrote this article for for the Directors Guild Quarterly magazine where he came out as explicitly as I think he's probably ever going to in talking about the finale and if not saying that Tony's dead, at least implied the idea that the whole scene is to remind you of our own mortality and how life can be sort of snatched away at any moment. Maybe it's this moment for Tony, maybe it's not, and we're never going to find out beyond that. Right, right. And, you know, to put a sad point on it, then we did lose James Gandolfini much earlier than, oh, God. you know, we would have thought, oh, that was terrible. So sad, sad to say that kind of parallel there. Um, let's move on from Sopranos, which I love, to The Wire, which is another, of course, great show. I love how you wrote in the book that friends come to you and say, I'm finally ready to watch The Wire, like they finally progress to a point. And you give them advice. What do you, what do you tell them? I say watch the first four episodes, like carve out a Saturday afternoon where you can watch four in a row. Because, A, you're not going to understand it otherwise, and you may not know if you like it otherwise. 
But if you watch four in a row, you'll figure out who most of the people are. You'll get used to the show's rhythms. And by the time you get to the scene in the fourth episode where uh, McNulty and Bunk look at the crime scene and do nothing but say the F word over and over, you will know if you like the show or not. It, it can be hard to get into. There's a lot. You're just kind of thrown into it, and there you go. It's it's described as a novel for television. Some of these other shows are as well, but that's the one I always think of. That's the novel. Um, many of the shows could fit that, but but man, I guess The Wire most of all. Maybe because uh, why do you think so? Because the characters are so complex. The characters and the are so complex. It's so also the way the narrative is structured. Like you look at The Sopranos, you look at an episode of The Sopranos, it still functions as we understand an episode of television is supposed to function. Tony has a problem at the beginning of the episode. It's resolved by the end of it. You know, here's a subplot for Christopher. Here's a subplot for Carmela. Here's a couple of jokes from Paulie Walnuts. Roll credits. The The Wire was like, here is just this next piece of the story. And, you know, we're going to stop when we've run out of time. And that's that. And you're going to get no closure because you just have to move on to the next one. Right. The wire is wonderful, and the the real Barksdale just died. And was it in prison? He died. We just I just read that in the news. The guy who inspired Avon. I, I, I believe he gave his name to Avon. Uh, Melvin Williams, who actually was on the show playing Deacon Melvin for a couple of the later seasons, Bunny Colvin's buddy, was the actual inspiration for Avon. There was just another ah. dealer named Barksdale who David Simon liked the name of. It is a great name. Yeah, that works out. Uh, we're going to move on to Deadwood, which I visited the real Deadwood this summer, which was kind of fun. They love to play up that show being set there. Um, and we talked about a little bit about the profanity in uh, The Wire and, oh, Deadwood. <laughs> they were swearing like, yeah. I mean, it's so. a real guy's name, but I love that the main character of Deadwood, his name is Swear Engine. Yes, yes. And he was a real guy. You can look at his Wikipedia and read, you know, tra- see a very blurry picture of him standing in the streets. Um, but yeah, and, and the swearing is modern swearing, which has, they, they've talked about why, why old fashioned swearing wouldn't have worked, you know, that it would have been kind of funny to listen to somebody saying, oh, darn it, or, you know, whatever the, the 1800s version was and, of the swearing. And it's remarkable because David Milch, I remember when he was initially promoting the show that there was just so much profanity that literally nobody wanted to talk about anything else. And, you know, and Milch is maybe the greatest wordsmith in TV history, and he's great with writing all kinds of language and just the way he structures his sentences and the way these characters talk is beautiful. But he also writes really creative, memorable and funny profanity. Yes. And it's great. But you don't want to have somebody in the in the room who's sensitive or a kid in the room when it's going on. It's not one of those shows that can play in the background with the swearing. And he didn't get to plan his final season because of the way the show kind of came to an end abruptly. Yeah, he had in theory intended it for to be four seasons, would have taken us up to around the time when the, the town was lit on fire and Swearingen's bar burned down and everything else. And there was an expensive show. Uh, HBO didn't own all of it. There was a lot of sort of conflicting agendas going on. And, you know, I get into the different versions of what happened in the book, which are too long to get into here. But the short version is the show ended in three seasons rather than four. And Milch was able to write a final scene, but maybe not end the the show the way it should have been. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's been talk of movies, but it looks like that hasn't gone anywhere. It's just hard to do because there's you need all of those actors. You need those sets on Melody Ranch. You need all of these different things to come together. It's not like you can just sort of get two people in a room for a weekend and do it. You need there's a lot of moving parts. Right. Right. And I will say that they did an amazing job when we were in Deadwood, South Dakota this summer. And we went to the the very touristy bar where Wild Bill was shot uh, playing poker. It looks like 
the set. We went back and watched the scene and it, you know, it's in kind of a little corner. So he, he didn't like that was back to the door, but he did. And it's, it's, they really, it's real. It, you know, it feels, it feels accurate. So that was at least the blend of history and fiction worked out well. Um, let's move on to the shield because I love the shield. And I think I was on the set of the shield with you once. Um, and it, it was the kind of show every time you tried to started to feel a little bit comfortable and think you knew who you were rooting for or what you were thinking about it, it threw you a curve. Well, no, I mean, the, the first episode, you think that this is, it's the Reed Diamond show. You know, Reed Diamond's going to come in. He's going to chase down evil Vic Mackey. And, you know, Terry Crowley is, it, he's our undercover hero. And he gets shot in the face at the end of the first episode. So yeah. at that point, you just have to check all of your assumptions at the door. And whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Right, right. You just did not know what was coming in that show. And it, it, it interesting that a lot of the, the cast return on Sons of Anarchy, which is the other show that made me feel that same way, like very nervous. A child could be horribly murdered or who knows what could happen. Um, and Kurt Sutter, right. of course, who created Sons of Anarchy, started out on The Shield. So there was right. a lot of DNA shared between those two shows. Yes. A lot of actors crossing over. It was always kind of like, hey, you're on the show. That's great. Um, moving on to loss. Um, you mentioned the frustration and the anger that fans felt when the mysteries or the plots didn't develop and how the internet was really a big part of discussing Lost and trying to solve the mysteries or just rant about them. You know, because you could crowdsource things. I remember like, you know, Jack and Claire were half siblings and that was something that the internet figured out like two or three years before the show actually revealed it. You know, I was, I was interviewing Carlton Cuse once at an ABC press store party and he mentioned Jack's dad. And I said, oh, he's Claire's dad, too, right? And Q's looked like he was going to have a heart attack. Because the idea that like people had figured it out so far ahead of them that when they actually did the reveals, they were, you know, they often felt underwhelming to people. But I think the show itself, the character work, the stories were so good and so rich that the fact that most of the mysteries didn't end well, you know, who cares ultimately? Right, right. I remember whenever we would write about the numbers, uh, people would, those stories would just get clicked on like crazy because everyone had a theory about what the numbers meant. And I think a lot of people were frustrated in the end that, you know, their pet theory wasn't the one or, you know, maybe no theory was. Yeah, was so it's right a no win scenario. Either you figured it out and it's underwhelming or it's so wildly a field of what you thought of that you're like, that's, that's no good. You know, the golden right. pool of light. Uh, that was not a good idea. But I'm not sure any like grand unified field theory probably could have been. Right. Right. Yeah. And I couldn't believe you you said in the book that Michael Keaton was considered for the role of Jack. Yeah, really? Jack was supposed to die in the first episode originally. And so they figure out let's we're going to fake people out. It'll be like on the shield and we're going to have a big name actor and everyone's going to think, oh, it's Michael Keaton's first TV show. And then they would be extra shocked when he died. Right. Right. Oh, crazy. It came out a little bit differently in the end. Um, yeah. So let's go to Mad Men, just kind of skipping a bunch of your, your wonderful chapters there, just because I've been watching that a lot. And uh, one of the things you said was AMC needed or wanted a Sopranos of their own. Uh, now, Mad Men's not quite the Sopranos, but it, it, it certainly got the, the good kind of reviews and fits into your book in the same way. Can we talk about Mad Men just a little bit? I'd love to talk about Mad Men, one of my yeah. favorites. Yeah. Uh, so John Hamm at first they didn't, didn't impress them. The tapes, they thought he wasn't right for Don Draper. Uh, apparently, and which is funny because we've now seen him act on TV for a long time, but John Hamm auditioning on tape, not impressive. John Hamm in person, impressive. So like the, you know, Matt Weiner and the casting people would watch him. He'd come in. He basically read every part of the script at various points, and they kept sending the tapes to AMC. And AMC's like, I don't, what's the big deal with this guy, goofy guy with the floppy hair? 
And so mm. finally they flew him to New York to meet with one of the executives at AMC at a bar. And within five minutes, she's like, okay, you're getting the part. Wow. Wow. And January Jones auditioned for Peggy. Is that right? Yeah, because if you remember the pilot, Betty is in one scene at the very end of the pilot. She's half asleep when he comes home. I, I think maybe she has two lines of dialogue. So if you're reading the script and you know nothing else about the show, you think that Peggy is the bigger part, which it ultimately turned out to be. But at the time, like you assume Peggy is the part you want because Betty is a nothing character in the pilot. And so they had to convince her, no, no, we'll, we'll come up with material for you. You're right for this. Right, right. And I think part of the beauty of Mad Men was it was such a well done period piece. I mean, Deadwood was as well. But the period of Mad Men, we have a kind of a fascination with that, wouldn't you say? We do. And the 60s has been like the most overchronicled decade of the 20th century. And we know so much about it. And so it should feel cliche at this point. But one of the brilliant things Matt Weiner did was he said, this is not going to be the baby boomer story. This is going to be about the previous generation and what it was like for them to experience the 60s. So even Peggy and Pete, who are two of the younger characters, they're grownups in 1960. They're in their 20s. They have jobs. So, you know, Sally Draper is the closest thing there is to a traditional 60s pop culture protagonist. And she's, you know, awesome, but a minor character. Right. Yeah. I wondered sometimes when I was watching how many people were seeing their own parents and going, oh, you know, I didn't know what my mom and dad were like when I was young. But they saw any of that and, you know, Don and Betty and the way Betty raised her children and the way Don went off to work and, you know, had his own life. And there was definitely kind of a. It was the opposite of the Wonder Years, in a way. You saw the parents living a life that maybe you didn't want to see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to imagine how John Hamm is Kevin's dad. That that could maybe work. <laughs> oh, Wonder Years, we loved you so. Uh, and Breaking Bad, of course, we have to get to Breaking Bad. Another AMC show, uh, you describe it in the book, or maybe you quote someone saying it was a risk for the network after the beautiful period piece that was Mad Men, and then they went to Breaking Bad. So let's let's talk a little bit about... Why is that it's in the book? It seems maybe obvious, but let it tell us well, how I mean, Breaking Bad changed. Because I think if if Mad Men had just been a fluke, if, if AMC did Mad Men and their next show was terrible, you know, or their next show died quickly, like if Rubicon, which is a show I like a lot, but failed, if Rubicon had been their second show, uh, history is maybe a little bit different, and maybe you don't suddenly have all these other channels rushing to make their own content. You don't have Netflix coming in and saying, we have to do our own shows and, and everybody else doing it. But because AMC had this one-two punch and, like, it wasn't a fluke, people said, oh, we can do that. Look at how differently people look at AMC now than before. Look at how essential this is to, like, people's cable packages and everything else. We need to go there. And one of the things that uh, we have to talk about with Breaking Bad, I think, is, again, getting back to the Internet and how uh, Anna Gunn, who played Skylar Walter White's wife, was treated online and how that character was handled, you know, in, and just hated. I mean, that, uh, that where, gets back to what we were talking about with Archie Bunker and everything else. It's fans root for the protagonist, no matter how terrible the protagonist is. Um, and so you have this thing with Skylar. It was the worst example of it. But you saw it with Carmelo Soprano. You saw it with Corinne Mackey on The Shield. You saw it with Betty Draper. I mean, you know. In almost yep. any rational version of Mad Men, Betty Draper is the sympathetic character. Certainly in any rational version of Breaking Bad, Skyler is the sympathetic character. But because, you know, Walt or Don or someone else is the protagonist and because Skyler is opposed to what Walt is doing, Skyler becomes the enemy. And it was re it got really, really ugly there for a while. 
Right. Right. I remember, didn't she write a New York Times piece about it that kind of crystallized things and suddenly people started really talking about that controversy? Yeah, it was it's it's not pleasant. And that's certainly been the, the biggest downside to the fact that we had so many of these like white male antihero shows in a row is, you know, they start con- conditioning the audience to think in a very weird way about situations that should be more emotionally black and white. Have we had a show with a woman anti-hero or could we have a show? Homeland is arguably that. We've had a few um, you know, damages, which is a show I didn't love. But, you know, what the Glenn Close character there, she, she could certainly qualify. It's been done. I mean, Piper on Orange is the New Black is I mean, that's a bit more of a comedy. But even so, Piper is definitely complicated and messy and a screw up in the same way that some of these other guys were. Right. Gemma comes to mind a little bit on Sons of Anarchy. I mean, she. You know, wasn't really the hero, I suppose, Jax was. But, man, when she was on the screen, it's hard to take your eyes off what she was doing. Yeah, so it can be done. But I, but I think also, unfortunately, like, we are more conditioned to accept a male antihero than a female antihero. So at a certain point, like, you know, Carrie Matheson is just like, get that crazy lady out of here. Um, right. Whereas if it was a show about, you know, a male spy who was bipolar and going through the same thing, I think there would be a little bit more indulgence of that. Sure. And let's talk a little bit about what's new in the revision. You said that you revised the Mad Men and the Breaking Bad characters because the shows hadn't finished when you when you published the first one. Yeah, I had a window in my schedule a few years back, and I'm like, I want to write this book. I want to write it now. But, you know, two of the shows aren't done. I don't want to leave them out. So hopefully down the road, I will do a revised edition. And eventually I did. I was able to do a lot of fresh interviews with uh, most of the Breaking Bad writers. There's a long stretch of the book that's just about Ozymandias, which is you know not only the best Breaking Bad episode, but I would argue the best episode of dramatic TV of all time. And then there's some new uh, Mad Men stuff as well. Great, great. And you did a second epilogue to kind of bring us up to date a little bit more? Yeah, because it's, it's amazing. It's, it was almost three years to the day between when the first self-published edition came out and when this revised edition came out. And as much had changed in those three years in TV as had changed in the 15 years since like Oz had debuted before the first edition came out. It's just, it's a book in and of itself, except you couldn't write it because things keep changing all the time. When I turned in that revision with the new epilogue, I lived in fear for a few months. Oh my God, how much of this is going to seem dated by the time the book hits stores? Right. Right. And are you talking specifically about Netflix, Amazon Prime, the streaming services? I'm not talking about the streaming services. I'm talking about, you know, what what John Landgraf, the head of FX, has called peak TV in America, where there's just more hours of TV than there is to watch. I mean, you know, you look at something like Horace and Pete, Lewis, which came out after this book and everything. But Louis C.K. went in secret and made a TV show with Alan Alda and Jessica Lange and Steve Buscemi and Edie Falco like that nobody knew about. And he just one day on a Saturday morning sent an email to his fans saying, here's this, pay five bucks. Wow. It's just, it's amazing how much TV is changing all the time. Yes. Yes. And that brings us to, if you mentioned that, you know, even when you wrote the book, there were shows you thought, Oh, this, this one was on the cusp of maybe including, uh, what would you include if you, you had to write it again today? Would you include House of Cards or Orange is the New Black? Uh, I would include a Netflix show, probably Orange over House of Cards, because I think it's a better show and I would enjoy writing about it more. Um, and you could sort of use either one of them as the canary in the coal mine for the Netflix right. phenomenon. I would do Game of Thrones because of what 
Um, it's sort of the epic scale of it and the production logistics and the idea of adapting a book. It's a, it incorporates a lot of different things that's gone on uh, along with Walking Dead, so I could deal with those at once. Louie, you know, whether or not it's a continuing show or not, as the, this auteur series where it's a one-man show, the guy does all the jobs, you know, does it without really any creative interference. So th- those would be among them, maybe girls or, or you know, t- um, transparent, almost certainly. So those are some of them. Right. It's nice to have so many choices that there's it's, just so much out so there. Many, it's so much out It's too much out there, which is a very high class problem to have. But when you're a TV critic and you're trying to keep up with it all, you know this as well as I do. It's, it's not easy. Right. Right. And as we wrap up, why don't you just tell us what you're working on now? I know you've got some other projects. Happening. All right. Well, I'm still on my blog at hitfix.com and uh, called What's Alan Watching, where I review lots of what's on TV. And Matt Dollar Seitz and I, who who covered The Sopranos, beat with me at the Star Ledger back in the day and is now the TV critic at New York Magazine. We are working on a new book called TV the Book, where we try to identify and rank the 100 greatest American TV shows of all time. And that's going to come out this fall. Wow, that's great. How are you, are you dividing them up? You take 50, Matt takes 50? or More how are you? or less. There were some that we wrote together. Like, we came up with a whole scoring system so that we, like, it's not, it, it, it's subjective rankings and yet not. Like, we tried to factor in different aspects so we can say, like, you know, I know this show is better than that show, and here is how I explain it. Wow. Yeah. As I know from my own job, yeah, everyone will have the, you left off my favorite. Oh, or you're going to get that so much over this book. <laughs> I, I loved writing it. I am very happy with how it came out, but we're going to get yelled at a ton. Oh, well, I think you can handle it. Alan Seppenwall, thank you so much for being with me. This has been a lot of fun to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.